What a joy it is for us to be able to gather on Christmas Eve. I know we have many uh, family members, friends, some who have traveled quite a distance to be here, and we're so glad that you have come. It's an honor to have each of you here to celebrate Christmas here at Fellowship of Wildwood. As we begin our time this afternoon in the Word, I want us to be mindful of the fact that we'll be taking the Lord's Supper together in a few minutes, and communion is a time for us to, to be able to look back, to reflect, to remember, and to give thanks. And so as we think over the next few minutes how we can prepare our hearts and our minds to receive communion together. We know that the baby who was born in a manger at Bethlehem would one day go to a cross at Calvary. And so we think of both aspects of his life as well as his death. Sometimes this time of the year, we use nativity scenes to remind us of his birth. And maybe some of you have a nativity scene in your home or you've seen them used as decor. There is a a famous one that is in Chicago at Daly Plaza that has shepherds and angels and wise men and, of course, Mary, Joseph, and the baby. It's it's a life-size nativity scene. It's one that that many people uh, go to each year. But they had an issue a few years ago in that uh, the baby Jesus was stolen. Uh, Someone took the figurine right out of the manger, and he was discovered a few hours later at a bus station uh, there in Chicago. And so to prevent this from happening again, those who who take care of the manger scene thought it would be a good idea to to cable the baby into the manger. And uh, you really can't see the cable on the picture. They've covered it with straw, uh, I suppose. But the goal was to make sure that Jesus never left the manger again, right? And so sometimes as we think about, about this time of year, we're, we're thinking about the Christ child. We're thinking of Jesus as a baby, and we sing carols that, that remind us of his birth. We sing things uh, uh, that, that talk about uh, him uh, being tender and mild and, and how he lays down his sweet head, no crying he makes. These are all phrases that we sing, and they give us these images of the divine child. But I ask you, is there more to the, to the life of Jesus than just his birth? Is it possible that we could just mainly keep our thoughts bolted down to his life in the manger and not reflect upon his full life, including laying down his life for us? So as we re- receive the Lord's Supper together this afternoon, I'd like for us to reflect upon his identity. This described in the Gospel of John. You see, John's gospel doesn't give us the account of of the shepherds and the angels. It doesn't make mention of, of Mary and Joseph. It's as if John wants us to see the story behind the story. And he gives us a different perspective. And so as a church, we've been in John chapter 1 throughout the Advent season. And so tonight we pick back up in verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, in this one verse, the disciple John provides all kinds of descriptions of the identity of Jesus so that the reader could understand and see that Jesus is indeed glory revealed. First of all, we see that Jesus is the speech of God. 
Jesus is called the word. And, and as you read that verse, that might seem a little strange to call a person a word. But what he's doing is he's taking the Greek word logos. And he's, he's trying to take a concept that would have been familiar to the initial readers that word would be speaking of, of what we would think of as logic or reason. In fact, we still use this suffix of logos when we talk about a particular field of study. Maybe we talk about theology or psychology or, or, or something along those, uh, those lines, and it's, it's helping us know that we're, we're thinking about a, a body of knowledge to study. And so John is employing this word to, to encourage people to think deeply about who's being revealed, what is being studied here. So to the Greek mind, logos would have been logic or reason. But to the Jewish mind, this idea of the word would be something that initiates action. Just think of how God created the world. It says that he spoke the, wor the world into existence. So the word of God would have, would have been meaning action to them. Just think about the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, the word, the word of the Lord came to me. And then he is hearing from God. Or the prophet Ezekiel. He said in Ezekiel 21 that the word of the Lord came to him. And then what did he do? He shared that word with others. And so as the Jewish hearers would, would understand this idea of the logos, they would be thinking about God communicating, God giving speech. And so John the disciple picks up on this concept and says, it's the word, the speech of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, the author of Hebrews would make a similar statement. In Hebrews chapter one, it says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So tonight, as we come and we reflect upon the identity of Jesus, let's see that he is the speech of God. He, is, he has come to communicate who God is. And I think we could ask the question tonight, are we listening? Are we listening to what God is communicating through his son? Again, John 1.14, the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only is Jesus the speech of God, Jesus is also the presence of God. This, this verse tells us that God became human flesh, that he came and dwelt on the earth. And, and as, we, as we see that word dwelt, we are reminded of his presence. But, but again, those who were first hearing these words would have, would have, would have thought of something a little deeper. Because what John is communicating here is a, is a word tabernacle. In fact, in the original language, he says, Jesus came and tabernacled here among us. So he takes a noun and, and makes this verb. And, and what it communicated to those who were, who were originally reading this is they were thinking about the Old Testament tabernacle. They were thinking back to the days of Moses. They were thinking about this large tent that they would erect and they would, they would put it up so that they would have a place in which they could worship God. But it would also be a place in which God's presence would dwell. Exodus chapter 25 tells us this. It says, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you 
the pattern of the tabernacle. And so just as as John utters this word and connects tabernacle to Jesus, the people are immediately understanding what he means. He means that God's presence would dwell among them. After all these years, all these years waiting for a word from God, they would receive one. All of these years waiting for the presence of God to be in their midst, it would come through Jesus Christ. Not in a tabernacle, but in his son. God would indeed come in a very personal way. I heard recently about a World, World War II general by the name of Omar Bradley. Maybe some of you have heard that name before. He was one of only a handful of generals who would attain the rank of a five-star general. It's interesting. He was born in 1893 in Missouri, just a little ways south of Moberly. And his Sunday school teacher uh, encouraged him to apply to West Point. And so he did, and he was accepted. And of course, that's when his military career began. During World War II, as a general, he was commanding 1.3 million soldiers. But General Bradley was known as the GI's general because he was famous for going into the front lines. I read an account that a World War II veteran uh, wrote. Uh, his name is Ben Brooks, and he's talking about an account in 1944. He's in, uh, he's in uh, Luxembourg on the front lines, and he was shocked when he had an encounter with General Omar Bradley. He says, I was actually in a foxhole, and the general joined me in the foxhole and said to me, do you have everything that you need, soldier? How are you with food? How are you with medical supplies? Here, this man that was commanding so many would step down into the front lines, into the foxhole to be right there with the ones who were in battle. Isn't it surprising to hear that a general would step down into a foxhole? Well, let me tell you tonight, we're thinking of something on a different level. We are thinking about a God who would step into earth that he would bring his presence here so that we could know him personally. And that's what Christmas is all about. Emmanuel, God with us. Can you think what the difference would make to have the presence of God in your life? Maybe some of you can reflect back on when that first took place. Maybe for others, you long to have the presence of God in your life, to know that it's it's him that brings peace. It's him that brings comfort. It's him that brings wisdom and joy. And most importantly, salvation. All of this comes with the presence of God in one's life. I encourage you tonight, let each of us draw near to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, John chapter 1, verse 14, doesn't just tell us that Jesus is the speech of God or that he is the presence of God. There's something else that he communicates. Let's look at it together. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what else it is that Jesus brings? We see that Jesus is the glory of God. And this concept of glory that John is referencing here would have, would have of course, brought to mind the, the days of the tabernacle when the, when the glory of God, the presence of God was made known in that place. 
The glory of God is the visible manifestation of divine presence. And now, in the coming of Christ, the disciple John is saying, here is the glory of God found in this one known as Jesus Christ. So Jesus, of course, is God dwelling on earth, but he's bringing the glory of God, the beauty, the vibrancy of God's character and God's attributes. And if you look closely there at verse 14, you'll see two of the attributes that are, that are, uh, that are detailed, and that is grace and truth. Grace and truth have come in Jesus Christ. Now, grace is the unmerited favor of God. This means that something is given that has not been earned or deserved. Grace is a gift. But God is also truth, meaning that which is right. And he is an objective truth, meaning that, that it is a timeless truth that doesn't change with the whims of the age. So in Christ, we read here that he is full of both grace and truth. It's not one or the other. It's not embracing grace and disposing of, of truth. It's both of them in their fullness coming through Jesus Christ. The entire earthly ministry of Jesus would be marked by both grace and truth. And even at the end of his life, as he goes to the cross at Calvary, we would see a demonstration yet again of both grace and truth. Here's how author Randy Alcorn ties these two together. He says, grace isn't about God lowering his standards. It's about God fulfilling those standards through the substitutionary suffering of the standard setter. Christ went to the cross because he would not ignore the truths of his holiness or our sin. Grace never ignores or violates truth. He goes on to say, grace gave what truth demanded, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. If we minimize grace, the world sees no hope for salvation. If we minimize truth, the world sees no need for salvation. So tonight, as we come to the Lord's table, as we are reminded of the identity of Jesus, to know that he has brought the fullness of grace and truth, we can be reminded tonight that truth, it tells us that we need salvation. But we can also be reminded of grace, telling us that being saved is very possible. It's, it's very possible in Christ. So as we think about the elements of the Lord's Supper, I hope that you received a cup on your way in. We're going to think about these elements and what they represent. We've been thinking tonight of Jesus, the speech of God. He's also the presence of God. He's the glory of God. And so now we have an opportunity on this Christmas Eve to reflect, to give thanks for what he has provided us in his life, which is represented in the bread, but also in his death, which is represented in the juice, reminding us that he gave his life on the cross. We are reminded that the baby in the manger came to give his life, and that we would think tonight of both the manger and the cross. I invite any of you tonight to participate in the Lord's Supper. You don't need to be a member of the church. We only ask that you profess Jesus as your Savior.
The decision is yours on whether you would like to participate tonight. You'll notice that both elements are in the cup and you want to pull off the side to, to get the bread first. And so we'll, we'll take the bread and we'll drink the cup together. But before we do that, let's take a moment to pray because prayer gives us an opportunity to, to draw near to the Lord, to give him thanks for what he has provided. It gives us an opportunity to reflect upon what he has done. It's an opportunity for us to confess sin it's an opportunity to approach him with words of thanksgiving and praise. So let's bow together and begin our time of prayer. Feel free to go ahead and, and be, begin praying to the Lord, and then I'll close our time in just a moment. Would you bow with me?